thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. On the 4th, 14th, and 24th of December, we'll feature a different bomber topic from the Cold War era General Dynamics FB 111 to the consolidated. B-24 Liberator, and strategic bomber flight tests. Never mind the announcements. Listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to it with your host, former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer, Ken Katz. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we'll interview retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Addison Thompson, who played a key role in flight testing several U.S. Air Force bombers. Welcome, Colonel Thompson. Hi, Ken. Good to see you. You too. Let's start off with the standard fighter pilot podcast question, which is uh, where are you from originally and what was your path into the Air Force? Well, I was originally born and raised in a small town in northern New Jersey and suburban New York City. I was born just prior to the start of World War II, so my early years there were during World War II. My path into the Air Force is kind of an interesting one, and it points out how some seemingly insignificant little events can cause a life-changing event. I read about this new Air Force Academy in an article in Reader's Digest. I was intrigued. I was very familiar with West Point, having grown up nearby and been there many times. So I thought, you know, that's something that I would maybe like to do, go into this new Air Force Academy. So I through my father, got an appointment with our local congressman, and he said, well, I can't give you an appointment. The Air Force is only allowing a certain number of people because it's a small cadre going in there in the beginning, but I can give you an appointment to take the Air Force exam. So I did that and ended up, lo and behold, getting a telegram from the Air Force. Telegrams were what we did back in the olden days, before the days of internet and so forth. Anyway, I got this telegram when I was going out of the house to go to school one morning. The car pulled up and says, you've been accepted. If you want to accept it, telegram back. So I did. And I ended up going into the Air Force Academy in the third class in 1957, having no idea about what I would do after I went to the Air Force Academy. That's how I got in the Air Force. Did you go to undergraduate pilot training right after graduation? Yes, the first three classes, we were all required to be pilot qualified. So after graduation from the academy, the next assignment was undergraduate pilot training, although they didn't call it that back then. That was what led me to becoming a pilot. When I first started going through pilot training, I was kind of a mediocre student because I had never had any aviation background. And about halfway through T-33 pilot training, the light bulb came on in my head. And from then on, airplanes and 
me were kind of one and the same. I don't know what it was, but I can still remember one day, all of a sudden, I remembered feeling like it was a switch thrown and aviation became part of me. Now, what was your first operational assignment in? My first operational assignment was in EC-121s at Otis Air Force Base, Massachusetts. When I graduated from pilot training, the first class of T-38 pilot training was going on at Webb Air Force Base. I was up the road at Reese Air Force Base, and we only got two fighter assignments in the whole class, and I was just out of the draw for fighter assignments, and I picked Otis Air Force Base, because I knew they had a fighter squadron there, F-101s, I thought maybe I might be able to snivel a transfer from EC-121s into F-101s, and that never happened. Anyway, that's where I went to 121s, and uh, at that point, somewhere in that time period, I found out about the Air Force Test Pilot School and decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to the Test Pilot School in a similar way that I chose to go to the Air Force Academy. It was a challenge to get accepted, and so I was always motivated by a challenge. I ended up through several different attempts to get transferred to another assignment to get a little bit more experience to be uh, qualified for test pilot school. I ended up in Air Training Command. Spent four years in Laredo, Texas in Air Training Command. Did you have a Vietnam tour? Right after my uh, time in Laredo in training command, I was trying to get to the test pilot school, and I actually took a cross-country flight out there and walked into the school and said, what do I need to do to get in here in addition to filling out my paperwork? And they said, well, you know, for one thing, you're going to have to have completed a Southeast Asia tour. And so that was my next focus was getting a Southeast Asia tour, and I pulled a few strings Laredo didn't want to allow me to leave. They were shorthanded on people at the time. And I pulled a few strings and got an assignment to a B-57 outfit. Turns out it was a a new version of the B-57, and I was sidelined for about a year where we were doing the operational testing of this G-model B-57, which was full of night sensors and so forth. So I spent an extra year before I went to Southeast Asia. And after that year, we did a squadron deployment to Ubon, Thailand. And I did 10 months there, about 105 combat missions. And I thought, now is my chance to go to test pilot school. And guess what? I got an assignment to Air Command and Staff College, and I couldn't get out of it. And I figured that was going to be the end of it for me because they had a seniority limit on how old and how senior you could be uh, to go to test pilot school. Two months before graduation from Air Command and Staff College, I got a message from Edward saying that I'd been accepted to the next class in uh, test pilot school. What were some of your projects coming out of test pilot school? Well, the first thing I did, I was assigned after graduation to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in uh, Dayton, Ohio. I did several different interesting systems projects there. Uh, one was a side stick fly-by-wire flight control system and a heavy jet being a modified C-141. Another one was a joint FAA Air Force project doing zero-zero landings to develop the procedures for certification of aircraft to do zero-zero landings. That was very interesting, flying around to different locations where the weather was 
below minimums and then doing approaches. Had some very interesting times there, like doing some touch and goes one night in Baltimore, Maryland, and an airliner wanted to land. And they said, now the field was closed. And he said, I just heard somebody giving a radio check. And he said, oh, that's an Air Force guy. He's doing touch and goes. He's not landing. The airliner didn't know what to say. It was a pregnant pause. And he said, I like my clearance to my alternate. (laughs) A lot of interesting tests there, but they were mostly small systems tests. And after two and a half years at Wright-Patterson, I got transferred back to Edwards. And what did you test at Edwards? First program that I was on was the Advanced Medium Stole Transport Test Program, the AMST. We flew the YC-14 and the YC-15. The idea was to develop a new jet aircraft that would take the place of some of the short takeoff and landing logistics airplanes in a combat zone like the uh, C-7 and the C-130 and the C-123. I got to fly both of those airplanes. It was three of us who flew both of the airplanes. When that program was over, I was part of the source selection committee to pick the winner, and the source selection was suspended in mid-progress and never resumed until years later, it became the C-17. Of course, by then it had grown significantly. But after the YC-14, YC-15 program, I spent a couple of years as the director of operations and programs in the headquarters there at Edwards. One day, my boss called me up to his office. I got a call from his secretary. He said, the general wants to see you. So I went up there and he says, I want to have you take over the B-52 offensive avionics system program. That was the program that would modify the avionics in the B-52 to make it compatible with the new air launch cruise missile. So that was my next job was to spend a couple of years setting up a detachment at Wichita, Kansas, testing the new B-52 OAS system and integrating all the weapons with the new uh, offensive avionics system. So what were some of the capabilities and features of the OAS, the offensive avionics system? The main thing was that it was going to be needed to integrate the air launch cruise missile. We were doing testing at Edwards on the two versions of the Alcom that were in competition, the Boeing version and the General Dynamics version, but they didn't have a system other than the hand-built systems in the test airplanes to launch the airplane. So the OAS was essential to integrate the Alcom, which at that time was President Carter's primary priority. The new OAS was basically replacing everything in the B-52 that had anything to do with weapons. We had to test navigation. We had to test weapons delivery, terrain following, terrain avoidance. We did uh, multiple dummy drops of nuclear weapons, and we did four live launches, two Alcom and two SRAM missile launches during that test program, all run out of Wichita, Kansas at the Boeing facility. Now, was this a all-Air Force effort, or was this what was called a combined test force? Yes, it was a combined test force. It was Boeing, the Air Force Flight Test Center, the Air Force Operational Test and Evaluation Center, and Strategic Air Command all working together in one location. When this program was originally in the planning stages, 
Edwards assumed that the testing would be done at Edwards because Edwards was the responsible test organization in the Air Force. But the program office had already signed a contract with Boeing that the testing would be done in Wichita, Kansas at the Boeing facility. They were going back and forth on that for a long time. And as director of operations and programs, I could see all this going on, but I wasn't directly involved until one day Systems Command Headquarters made the decision that the testing was going to be done at the Boeing facility. And we had nobody in place to go back there and set it up. That's when the general told me I was going to be the guy. I had three weeks from the time he told me to go to a week's fourth of ground school in the B-52, which I had never even been in the airplane, so I don't know anything about it, sell my house and move to Wichita, Kansas. And it happened to be three weeks before Christmas. So I left Edwards a couple of days before Christmas, having just sold my house and moved to Wichita, Kansas. We didn't even have an office back there. I spent a long time negotiating with the president of Boeing, Wichita, Lionel Alford, and finally ended up getting a building assigned in the Boeing campus for the uh, new combined test force, which we had to set up from the ground up. There was nobody there. It was very interesting times. How many airplanes did you have as part of your test force? We had one, one B-52G model. It was kind of a very intense test program because we had a uh, deadline set at the presidential level. But because of that presidential interest in the program, I had the highest priority in the Air Force. I had a 1-1 priority, which enabled us to get any asset we needed for any of our test missions. Sometimes a lot of the other projects that we bounced off of the ranges were not too happy about that, but it enabled us to move fairly quickly. Once we started flying, we flew one flight a week for a couple of weeks, and then I moved it up to uh, two flights and everybody groused. And then I said, once they got comfortable with that, we were going to fly three flights a week and they really groused, but we were against a pretty tight deadline. And as it turns out, we met the deadline. Somewhere along there, I decided I had to make the decision as to whether I was going to remain in the Air Force or get out of the Air Force. When I was Assigned to Wichita, my boss, General Connolly, had to get a, a approval from the Military Personnel Center to allow me to take a permanent change of station assignment without going to senior service school. I was earmarked to go to Air War College on my next transfer. So that was coming due. My final year of eligibility was in uh, summer of 1981, and that was also where our deadline was to finish this OAS program. I also was on the promotion list, and if I'd have taken the promotion, I would have had another couple of years of committed service. And if I'd have taken the school, I would have had three more years of committed service. So I decided I wanted to keep flying. I wanted to keep doing test flying. So I sent out a few feelers to some people I knew in the industry. I had three job offers before I retired, and I... Uh, elected to retire in the summer of 81. So who did you go to work for then? I went to work for a little company in Mojave, California, by the name of Flight Systems Incorporated. And the reason why I picked them was I thought that it was a lot more uh, interesting flying. My other job offers were Boeing and Douglas, and I knew I'd be part of the regular army there. Flight Systems 
had a fleet of small old airplanes like uh, F-86, T-33, A-4, and we did a lot of testing of systems and weapons for companies that didn't have their own flight test department. So it was quite an interesting mix of little testing and uh, a lot of fun, even though the pay wasn't the best. I opted for a salary about half what the other guys were offering. And I worked there for about four years. And one day I had a call from a friend of mine in the Air Force, or he had been in the Air Force as I was. The gist of his call was they were trying to replace a position on the B-1 program and my name had come up and was I interested in that kind of a program. And the short version was we met and we talked and I was and and they hired me. So you joined Rockwell International on the B-1 team in 1984? Late 84, yeah. Late in 1984. So what was your impression of the B-1B? Well, it was very awesome airplane. It was, you know, as far as big airplanes go, it was very maneuverable. It was, uh, had superior performance to any of the big airplanes I'd ever flown. Again, it was a crude airplane. I had gotten used to flying single-seat, single-engine airplanes at flight systems, so I had to get used to flying with a four-man crew again. But it was certainly an awesome airplane, and uh, and the testing that we did was very interesting from a test pilot's point of view because of all the intricate nuances about a swing-wing airplane and a speed regime from takeoff to supersonic. We had a lot of interesting testing. I've got a question from a uh, fighter pilot podcast supporter, Gary Fry. And the question is, how far along the operational qualification or development path was the B-1A when it got canceled? And was the B-1B able to leverage any of the flight test results from the B-1A, or did the B-1B have to start from scratch? Well, it's a little bit of yes for both of those. The B-1A was pretty much finished with most of the flight testing when it was canceled. And we were able to leverage a lot of the information gained from the B-1A flight test into the B-1B, particularly in the realm of aerodynamics and some of the uh, systems. But because it was a different airplane and it was heavier, we had to do almost all of the flight testing over again to validate what had been done during B1A and what had been done in the simulators and so forth. So it was a combination of the two. What were the major areas of testing required for the B1B, sort of above and beyond what had been done on the B1A? Well, because of the uh, heavier gross weight of the airplane and the new flight control system, we had to do almost all of the uh, handling qualities, testing over again. And because the new avionics, we had to start from scratch on terrain following and terrain avoidance. And because of the uh, weapons deliveries, we had to do all the weapons deliveries. So it was a pretty extensive flight test program. For people who are listening to the podcast who may not be familiar with the term, what exactly does handling qualities mean? And how do you test it? Well, how the airplane responds to the pilot's inputs A fighter airplane is very responsive, small stick inputs, maneuvers the airplane. Some of the bigger airplanes and takes large flight control inputs to make a maneuvering turn or whatever. So all of the responses of the aircraft, any input from the pilot, are what we talk about as handling qualities or flight control system testing. 
So we would typically do controlled inputs and measure the response of the airframe. And the airplane had extensive instrumentation. The test airplanes we used had sensors built in when the airplanes were built. And there were, I believe, if I remember right, more than 10,000 channels of instrumentation throughout the airplane. But when we did the more extensive testing, like the edge of the control envelope, that's where you got to do a lot of interesting testing where you would do slow decelerations to the limit angle of attack, or you would do uh, turns to the limit angle of attack or the maximum G at that configuration. Those were the more interesting tests called high angle of attack or high alpha testing. What was the operational reason why you had to have high angle of attack testing? Well, the B-1, because of its unique aerodynamics, it was discovered during B-1A testing that the airplane was unstable in pitch at an angle of attack that was below where the maximum lift was generated. In a so-called traditional airplane, a stall was defined by when the wing stopped flying and the nose of the airplane would start to shake and fall. The B-1, however, doesn't do that. You could be in a descent with a high angle of attack and still have more pitch authority to make the situation worse. You could pull more nose up pitch. So in order to take advantage of this extra lift that was still there, we had to artificially stabilize the airplane. And that's part of the flight control system of the B model that didn't exist in the A model. And the operational reason for it was so they could take advantage of the heavier gross weight to carry more ordnance to a longer range. In fact, the B-1B was almost 100,000 pounds heavier than the B-1A as far as max gross weight, yet the basic weight of the two airplanes was only about 10,000 pounds difference. And the difference in that gross weight was made possible by the flight control system. And that's some of the uh, high angle of attack testing that I mentioned. Can you describe the flight control system in a little more detail about what particular features the B-1B had? The B-1B is a hybrid flight control system. It has a mechanical link to the control effectors, which were a fully flying stabilator tail, three-piece rudder, and spoilers for roll control. And also for roll control was differential stabilator. So we had mechanical links, but because those mechanical links don't give you the best and smoothest flight control system, it also was designed with a stability and control augmentation system, which was an analog computer system. And therein was where we adapted the flight control system to handle the, uh, the needs and the nuances of flying at higher angles of attack. I could try to describe some of it to you, but we'd have to get into the nitty-gritty of analog computers where you have integrators and uh, so forth. Bottom line was the guys in the engineering department that came up with this had a fantastic simulator that was full of cables and patch boards, and that's how we developed all the settings for these analog computers in the airplane that enabled us to make the airplane fly stable, even though we were in an unstable regime. It felt like it was flying stable to the pilot. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. How did the work in the simulator interact with the flight testing? That was a key to any of the flight testing we did. We pre-flew every test maneuver that we were going to fly in an airplane in the simulator. Sometimes, many times before we were satisfied with the way it was working. And the engineers that were monitoring the simulator flying took the data from the simulator and had that in the control room when we flew in the airplane. And they compared the results in the simulator with what we saw in the airplane so that if something didn't look right, they could call a halt to the test. So the simulator was absolutely critical to the flight test. What were some of the risks of this high angle of attack testing? The main risk was that the airplane might go out of control. And being a heavy, large airplane, there was no way like with a fighter airplane that we could have a spin recovery chute built into the airplane or something like that. If we lost control of the airplane, uh, it was predicted that the airplane would eventually go into an unrecoverable spin. So we'd lose the airplane. And obviously that couldn't happen. We couldn't afford that. Airplanes are too expensive nowadays. So what we had to do is make sure we had full understanding of what the airplane was doing at any time, and we could have a knock-it-off call from either the control room or the pilot flying the airplane. Luckily, we never had to uh, get close to an emergency knock-it-off call. Our simulator work was much more productive. We ended up finding the bugs that we needed to clear up in the simulator before we ever got it into the airplane. Were there any close calls? during uh, this testing, or was it fairly uneventful? I wouldn't say it was uneventful, nor would I say they were close calls. There were a few times when we reached a limit that we'd set for ourselves and we terminated a maneuver, but we never had anything that I would call a close call, like just barely pulling it out. It was very uh, organized and consequently very safely flown. Was the um, high attack testing done only by Rockwell, or was this also a combined test force? No, it was all done by the combined test team. We had myself and the chief test pilot for the Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel Randy Gaston, were the principal guys doing the testing, but Ken Dyson from Rockwell and Wayne Staley from the Air Force were also doing testing. Because it was developmental testing, we didn't have the SAC pilots doing those tests, although sometimes they might be a co-pilot on the flight. Were there uh, chase planes during the testing? 
there was always a chase plane. We always had at least one chase plane for every time the B-1 flew. Usually it was an F-111. And we all took turns flying the chase planes to uh, have a, a B-1 qualified pilot watching what was going on outside the airplane. Sometimes when we needed photography for like weapons tests, we would have a T-38 or an F-16 chase. Mostly it was F-111 chase. And was the F-111 broadly comparable to the B-1 in terms of performance or adequate for the test? Yeah, it was. Interestingly, the F-111 was faster at the top end, but the B-1 would out-accelerate it when, you know, if we started out at the same time going to full afterburner. They were very comparable in the flight envelope that they both had, and F-111 had pretty long legs. In other words, it could fly for a long time, as could the B-1. If we had to use a F-4, F-16, or a T-38, their longevity in a particular flight was about an hour, hour, 20 minutes, whereas the F-111 could last for hours. And so that's why it was a optimum chase airplane for a B-1. Was uh, aero refueling important to the high angle of attack testing to get the weight of the aircraft up? Absolutely. We did a, a lot of refueling. As you can imagine, an airplane like the B-1 that had different wing sweeps possible, you basically had a whole series of different airplanes you were testing. The way we bounded that problem was to only look at five different wing sweeps, but we also wanted to look at the extremes of the aircraft envelope. So we had to adjust the gross weight of the airplane and the center of gravity of the airplane from the lightest gross weight to the heaviest gross weight and the most forward center of gravity to the most aft center of gravity. So when you put all those things together, you've got a matrix of quite a a lot of different configurations to test. And so being able to go to the tanker and readjust your gross weight to put it where you needed it to be for a particular test was absolutely essential. How long was a typical high angle of attack flight? Most of those typically were about four to five hours, sometimes shorter if we had issues. Like early in the program, we had hydraulic system issues where we would develop leaks at the hydraulic pumps on the engines and have to land. But generally speaking, you didn't want to fly more than four or five hours of doing this intense kind of testing just because it was a fatigue issue for the pilots. How many uh, times did you typically air refuel in, let's say, a four or five-hour flight? It varied, sometimes one, sometimes four or five. How did you control the center of gravity? You talked about the importance of that. The B-1 has a built-in pump system to pump fuel between the most forward tank and the most aft tank in the fuselage. That's necessary because of the wing sweep. If you had the wings full forward, you couldn't have the center gravity way aft. And conversely, when you sweep the wings aft, you didn't want to have the center gravity too far forward. The system was controlled by a computer when you were in the automatic mode and pumped the fuel back and forth between the two tanks. But we also had the capability in the manual mode to adjust the center gravity where we wanted it. So a particular test might have a mid-center gravity, and we'd set the center gravity where the test card called for it. And the next test, it might be uh, aft-center gravity. So we would adjust the manual adjustment on the dash 
and uh, set it back to where the flight card called for it. So that made it very easy to adjust the parameters of the airplane to match the parameters we were trying to achieve for the for the test point. The uh, listeners, I think, of the podcast will be interested to know that the Society of Experimental Test Pilots uh, awarded Lieutenant Colonel Gaston and you the Ivan C. Kinchlow Award for this testing. For the people who aren't familiar with that, that's like the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for flight testing. What year was that that you were awarded that? That was 1989. I had to go look at the trophy. (laughs) I was a bit surprised when they uh, announced it at the awards banquet. Even more surprised was my wife, who had no idea what I was doing. I figured out partway through when they were announcing what the award was being given for that year, I figured out it was partly me. And uh, my wife got this blank stare on her face. And one of the guys, one of the people sitting at the table said, you had no idea that he was doing this, did you? (laughs) Now, some of the other tests that you were doing on the B-1, you talked about terrain following. What was a terrain following test like? That sounds fairly risky because you're close to the ground going fast. It is. And we started out at higher altitudes and got lower and lower until we developed the system to be safer at low altitude and got the bugs out. And there were a lot of little glitches and bugs that had to be worked out of the system. But the reason it was essential for the B-1, if you remember, the mission of the B-1 was a nuclear penetrator. And the defenses at that time meant that it had to go very low and very fast in order to penetrate the defenses. What the B-1B was designed around was a 0.9 Mach at 200 feet. That's how the airplane was optimized. Once we got feeling comfortable at 200 feet, then we took it off the Edwards Range and flew it on low-level routes around Southern California in the mountains and uh, across lake beds and so forth. We also had to do testing over snow to make sure that the radar still worked, even with a thick snow cover. And believe it or not, Strategic Air Command wouldn't allow the airplanes to be used operationally in the train following mode until we in flight tests had done it at night and in weather. And, you know, we told them that the radar doesn't know night from day, but they wouldn't do it until we flew it at night. So we had to do night terrain following also. Eventually, the system was working very well at 200 feet, at 0.85, 0.9 Mach. We learned early on that even though the system was designed to allow it to be manually flown with control commands in the cockpit, that the autopilot, so to speak, could fly it much better than a pilot could. We abandoned the idea of ever doing it manually. It was autopilot only for terrain following, even though we always guarded the stick in case we had to take over and pull the nose up. So was it autopilot coupled in all axes? So as well as pitching up and down, you were following a uh, program flight path? We followed a program flight path, and the, uh, the terrain following was in the pitch axis, of course. The only thing it didn't do for us was control the throttles. The airplane had auto throttles, but we never really developed it to be responsive enough. It was always too slow to follow the nuances of the uh, terrain, particularly in mountainous terrain. So we had to manually control the throttles to maintain our speed. 
It sounds like there's a common theme in some of this testing between the high angle of attack testing and the terrain following testing where you had a buildup approach where you started at the most benign condition and then slowly worked your way up to the more challenging edges of the envelope. Yeah, that's traditional in just about all flight testing. You start in the middle of a flight envelope before you go towards the edges. You start with the most benign conditions before you get to the more extreme conditions. That was even true in weapons testing where, for example, when we were testing the 500-pound bombs, the first few drops were just a handful of bombs, and then we worked up to uh, maybe 18 bombs and kept working up and increased loads until we finally did the full 84 all flight testing starts in the benign conditions and works to the more extreme, and that's for safety. You learn more while you're flying the airplane and you develop a lot more data. The data that you develop when you're flying in a benign regime, you can apply to compare it to your computer programs for the more extreme conditions. And so that's just basic in all flight testing. You talk about these mass drops of Mark 82 500-pound bombs. Was this a risky, considered a high-risk test in that the bombs might actually hit the aircraft or they would hit each other? That's how we did the original few bombs. We looked to see what the airflow would be, and we might have to adjust, which we did have to adjust some of the spoilers on the weapon bays so that the bombs wouldn't pitch up and fly back up into the airplane, which has happened uh, on some airplane programs. It wasn't considered to be as hazardous as, for example, flutter testing or the high angle of attack testing, but it was moderately hazardous, particularly when you start doing full load drops where you have so many air, uh, bombs coming out of the airplane all at the same time. The B-1 could carry 84 Mark 82s, and they were 500-pound bombs. So 84 bombs coming out of the airplane in 1.7 seconds was quite a bunch of hardware coming out of the airplane. And if they ran together or flew back up into the airplane, it could be a, a serious problem. But by doing a few bombs in the initial test and then adding a few more and then adding a few more, we learned how the airflow was around the bomb bays, adjusted the spoiler deployment, and it worked out very fine. When we did the first 84 drop, it was clean. Everything came out clean. When the B-1 loses uh, about 20 tons in one and a half seconds or 1.7 seconds, does it fly up dramatically? It definitely did. I did that first 84 drop. The impression I had with all of these little actuators going off around the uh, center section of the airplane was like a machine gun going off in the airplane. You could feel it through the airplane. And the airplane had an almost 2G increase in nose-up pitch, which I had to counter with uh, forward stick. But it was quite an interesting uh, event in that you wouldn't think that just losing all that weight would cause the airplane to react so much, but it did. It was over a G and a half of nose-up pitch. Now, you mentioned flutter testing. What's flutter testing, and how do you do it? Flutter is an aerodynamic response to airflow over a structure. You might see it on a stop sign in the wind alongside the highway when the wind's blowing just right, and the sign just vibrates all by itself. Well, that's flutter. Airplane wings or tail surfaces 
when the condition is right with the airflow over it, to excite the natural frequency of the structure can start it vibrating all by itself. And it can vibrate enough to be destructive. So that would be not a good thing for that to happen in an airplane. So the way we tested for that was the first airplane uh, that we used for flight testing had vibrators built into the top of the tail and on the wingtips. And we would intentionally vibrate the uh, wings and the tail at certain frequencies and measure the response in the airplane. And by doing that, we could determine the flutter characteristics of the structure of the airplane and make sure that we were flutter-free at the flight control envelope that we intended to fly in. It's one of the more hazardous tests because if you do have flutter, it can destroy the wing or the tail It's fluttering and then lose the airplane. Because the B-1 is a variable geometry aircraft, did you have to test flutter at all the different wing sweep angles? Yes, we did. And different fuel loadings and weights and things like that? That's true. And like I said before, the fact that the airplane's a variable geometry airplane, it made the testing matrix that much more complicated. Now, I know that you gained some fame in the B-1 community for taking off a B-1B from a civilian airport with only three engines. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it was early in the operational employment of the B-1, uh, an airplane out of Dias Air Force Base doing a night low-level training mission had a bunch of warning lights. They felt a big shutter in the airplane, and all of the warning lights came on, and uh, they thought they had a fire in the left nacelle. They fired the fire bottles, shut the engine down, they thought, and they landed at the nearest airfield, which happened to be Pueblo, Colorado. And when they got out of the airplane, they looked at the left nacelle, the number one engine was missing, actually missing from the airplane or falling out. In that time, those engines had a little bit of a rub problem in the compressor. What had happened was the compressor disc had come apart and the blades from the compressor took out two of the three bolts that hold the uh, forward part of the engine in the airplane. So it rotated around the aft bolt that held the engine and ripped through the nacelle and left the airplane. So here we had a B-1 sitting at Pueblo Airport in Colorado, and it was like October, winter coming on. They were concerned there was no hangar there to put the airplane in. And when this happened, the next day I had a one of the Rockwell managers came to me in my office and said, tell me about this and said, do you think that that airplane can be flown out of there? So the Air Force came to Rockwell and asked him to do something, and he asked me to do something. So I looked at the uh, altitude, the length of the runway, and performance charts that we had, both three-engine and two-engine performance charts. And after doing a little bit of analysis, I told him I thought it could if we could make a few changes to the systems of the airplane and then also repair some of the damage that was done. So I got to work with our chief engineer. They made the changes to some of the software necessary so that, for example, we could run the APUs airborne, which normally we could not. And I calculated the fuel load that we needed to have an appropriate takeoff performance, enough fuel to get to Tinker Air Force Base, the Air Force Depot, and still have enough weight on the airplane to have a 
good minimum control speed on the ground if we lost the other engine on that side. Bottom line was they worked on it for about three weeks and we went down there and uh, checked it out and took off and it turned out to be an uneventful flight. I wrote it up as a technical manual uh, report. About a year later, I got a call again. There was an airplane at uh, Dias Air Force Base that had a engine fire and they had another three engine ferry flight they wanted to have done. So would you do it again? And so I went there to Dias. It was not nearly the problem as Pueblo because the airfield was longer. It was at a lower altitude. And I had a SAC co-pilot with me that I checked out on how to do all of this stuff. Interestingly enough, many years later, several years later, I was sitting in my living room and I got a call one night from an Air Force guy who didn't tell me where he was calling from. He, he said, I can't tell you, but I understand you flew an airplane out on three engines. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we have an airplane somewhere that I can't tell you where it is. It's got three engines. Do you think they can fly it out? And I said, well, what's the altitude and uh, how long is the runway? And he told me, and I said, yes, it can be done. And I told him about my technical report. In fact, I think I sent it to him electronically and I never heard back. So I assumed that they got the airplane out of wherever it was successfully. Here's a fighter pilot podcast question that, that all the guests get asked. Do you have a personal call sign? You know, today in the B1 community, everybody's got some call sign or another, but did you have one? And if so, how'd you get it? No, I didn't. And when I was in the Air Force, we didn't have personal call signs. I got out of the Air Force in 1981. I think that came along mostly in the Navy, but it gradually became more of an Air Force thing also. But we used nicknames, but not personal call signs. So, no, I didn't have one. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, sharing your experiences and expertise. Uh, really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. And sometime we'll have to uh, talk about that air launch cruise missile. Uh... Indeed. Thanks again. Okay. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the host and his guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components or its contractors. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.